I get to worship God with the saints three times today. I get to preach the same material three times. But downtown, they're going to get the best version, I'm sorry to tell you. No, in actuality, the sermon I'm about ready to preach, I've done about 20 times. It's uh, some of my favorite material. It's been about four months working on it. I'm an R&D kind of a guy. This is a story that I believe you might remember 10, 20 years from now. And it involves a story in the Bible that is the most recorded outside the Bible than anything else in secular history. It's so, so, so significant that even we're bearing the positive consequences of this story today. First of all, I want to ask you a question. How many times do you think David and Goliath, how many hits do you think that story gets? Google it. Close. 18 million. Good, yes. Okay, but the story we're going to look at today, I'm going to guess 357,000. However, David and Goliath it wasn't all about God, because I don't know if you're aware of this. If David defeated Goliath, his family would never have to pay taxes again. He would get the girl, and then he would get a lump sum of a treasury. I mean, it's a reward for taking Goliath. And it wasn't all about God, because there's a good case that's been made that he could have defeated Goliath just as long as he didn't wear that armor because he was spry, young, and he could eventually get one through the skull of Goliath. And Goliath couldn't have done anything about it because he couldn't catch up with David. So David Goliath's story is fun, it's exciting, it's great for telling children, but it's not all about God. Amen. The story we're talking about today is... Okay, do you know the story, okay? It's a biblical story with the most supporting evidence outside the scriptures from contemporaries, even more than the story of Jesus. It contains the most important lesson of all time. It involves an evil nation with the gruesome features greater than Germany and Nazi Germany and Tolkien's Mordor, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it contains true brave heart-like moments. And it ends in a plot twist greater than belonging to any Star Wars saga. <laughs> now, I, I hinted at this story to, in a meeting this week with some people on Thursday night. So if anybody was there, they can't raise their hand. But anybody else here know what story this is? Yes. I'm guessing the party in the Red Sea. Yes. No? But it's, well, I can see why you would get, go there. Anybody else? Yes. <laughs> nope. Good stuff there. That's a good story. The day the sun Nope. Okay, I'm going to tell you in Star Wars fashion, okay? Let's go. <laughs> a long time ago, the Assyrian warrior King Sennacherib sought to rule the entire Middle East. The city of Babylon and the regions of Phoenicia and Philistia were the first to fall during the Dark Lord's quest to conquer Egypt, Ethiopia, and beyond. 
Only Jerusalem, the capital city of the small nation of Judah, stood in his way when its king Hezekiah defied Sennacherib. You're invited to the story of a standoff during the summer of 701 BC that will be told and retold until the end of time. It's in your Bible. It's amazing. You know, I've, I've read the Bible many times, but until I really did research on this, I've missed some really big stuff. It's in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Isaiah, some of the other prophets. And we'll, co we'll cover a little bit more. Here's what we know about the Assyrians. They are military pioneers. When you watch Lord of the Rings and you see all those catapults and battering rams, this nation invented those things. They loved war. When a new king would come on the scene, he would just go fight just to prove how hot he was. They were cruel. They invented impaling and crucifixion. And they were shameless. They wanted their enemies to suffer humiliation and excruciating pain. One commentator goes on to say there's no, of all the kings, no power more useless, more savage, more terrible ever cast its gigantic shadow on the page of history as it passed on the way to ruin. The kings of Assyria tormented the miserable world. And they went on to do so many awful things. I mean, they were just terrible. They would fill the lands with corpses. They cut down warriors like weeds. That is an awful, evil nation. In the Bible, we see these four kings named in succession in Assyria. And when King Sargon II passed away, it was in a battle. And because it was in a battle, it showed that they were not superior, that they could, might be vulnerable and inferior. So his son, when he became king, he felt right away, I just got to prove how great we are, lest the empire wakes up. So what do we know about Sennacherib? He was an engineer. He was smart. He built aqueduct systems. He designed things. He's brilliant. When he fought the Babylonians and invaded them, they had these fortified walls that they could not get through to defeat their enemy. However, the river, I think it was the Euphrates, ran underneath the city up into it. So they drained the river and routed it out the city so they could walk up into the city. He's smart. He never acknowledged his defeats. That might might do some politicians in this world too. Yeah. <laughs> he was narcissistic, evil, and ruthless. There's no doubt about that either in scripture or in secular accounts. Isaiah, new player on the team. He served for about 50 years. He had a wife who was a prophetess. He prophesied to about five kings, some good, some bad. Ahab was a, Ahaz was a real weak king, kind of uh, just everything you wouldn't want in a leader, but his son Hezekiah became a great king. And so what we know a lot about Isaiah, he's the prince of prophets. He consulted, he prayed, he encouraged, he was a spiritual support, he warned, he forecast the future, he mentored, and he built a camaraderie with Hezekiah. That was his greatest relationship with a king that ever you see in the Old Testament. And by the way, I want to make a comment here for you, especially if you are a leader over a ministry or a leader in any capacity. Every king in the Old Testament, Israel and Judah, when they split, 
All the ones in Israel never had a prophet in their life that we can find. Or they had antagonistic relationships with their prophets. The kings of Judah, about 18 of them, about seven had good relationships with prophets. They ended up being good kings. Interesting, having somebody in your life. And you want somebody in your life, and you want somebody in your leader's life. Amen. I came here in 2011 to help consult to do mediation uh, with some top leaders in the LA Church. And they were successful mediations. But I said, here's what you guys need to do. Is every significant influential leader needs multiple people in their life who knows the answers to these eight questions. Come on, bro. I talked about family, children, marriage, finances, extracurricular activities, strengths, weaknesses, addictions, things like that. And you need them, and those three people should be able to talk to one another about you. Some of the people that I shared that with went on to do that, and they lived that kind of way already automatically. Others have not. Come on, bro. And it shows up in time that eventually you reap what you build, what you sow. Amen. Hezekiah had Isaiah in his life. And he is the center, central figure of the story from a human standpoint. He's closely linked with Isaiah. He was described in the Bible, there's no one like him. No one. Not any of the kings of Judah. Well, the first king of Judah was David. If you talk to a Jew today, who know their Testament better than we do usually, you know, a worshiping Jew, you ask them, who's the greatest king in the Bible? They'll say Hezekiah. You ask a Christian today, they'll say David. David was a mess. <laughs> His only redeeming quality is that he kept coming back up for more. <laughs> he, he gave him comebacks. And you've got to love that about David. But man, he did not know how to do marriage. He did not know how to raise kids. So Hezekiah is no one like him. He was the honor he has. His dad was a worm in many respects from a leadership standpoint. He had a renaissance spirit and rediscovery. He had outside the box ideas. He went to Israel and says, hey guys, come to Jerusalem and worship with us. But the Israelites in Samaria had already abandoned so many things about God that that was a risk. Pick the, the loosest doctrine denomination in your mind that you can think of right now. And go ahead and invite one of those churches to a meeting here in this building. That's outside the box. But he did that. And it was considered for this Passover that they had the second greatest Passover in all the Old Testament. It was sloppily executed. It wasn't at the right time of the year. But because... God on his heart. Let's reconcile people. Let's pull people back. Let's get people to come to Zion and worship. And that vision was cast by Isaiah before Hezekiah even became king. So you've got this partnership. You've got outside the box idea. You have reconciliation on the heart. And one of the cool things that happened when Hezekiah did that is the lost books of the Bible they did, they did not have in Jerusalem. They recovered by going up into Israel. And your Bible is a standing testament. The book of Proverbs, they didn't have. Wow. Things like that. That's deep. He also was an engineer. You'll see it a little bit. 
both their partnership, they're both prayerful, courageous, outside the box, and a spiritual relationship. And they, they both cared for Israel, the northern kingdom, and, and Isaiah was his confidant. Now, here's the setting for the real first world war. Okay, there's Jerusalem right down there. That, that red area, that's the Assyrian Empire. And they were trying to get down into past Saudi Arabia, into Egypt, and down to Ethiopia. They wanted to conquer the world. This was so close in the spirit and mentality for what we had of the Germans and the Japanese 70, 80 years ago. And, and it was scary. So what you have is records of this outside of our Bible because of how significant it was. It was the 9-11 of the first of this early period. Judah, the smallest nation, the last semi-tribe, holder of the law, was a small group of 47 cities, I believe. In the British Museum is a room, I've been in this room about five times, is the telling of one of the battles of Judah in a place called Lachish. And in great detail, we know what happened because of these, what they call our reliefs. We also know from scriptures like Isaiah, this prism that you see right there, there's three of them. This is Sennacherib's version of what happened. One is in Israel, one is in the British Museum, and one is in Chicago. And it's about this big, and you would need two things to be able to read it, a magnifying glass and be able to read the language. <laughs> what we do have is the transcription of it, and it's consistent with our scriptures, except in meaning. We have also Herodotus, an ancient Greek historian, and other sources telling us about this battle. It's really considered the first world event of any kind. And what's a world event? It's an event by which many nations from different perspectives are all talking about it at the same time. And in the days before, what we have is global communications. This energized people to record it and research it because it had major implications. Jerusalem was the last standing city between Sennacherib going down into Africa. And as I said, they have 47 cities. Well, 46 of them were completely wiped out by Sennacherib. He saved Jerusalem for last. There was incoming people that, uh, refugees that escaped, would make their way to Jerusalem and tell these horror stories. Awful things that freaked out the people in Jerusalem. When people would arrive in the capital city, they would find some people were partying because they knew they were going to die. I want to go out drunk. Okay? Other people were working on fortifying the halls. They would tear down their houses and use that material to fortify the walls. And there were other things being done, which I'll share in a moment. But then there's all these different opinions about what we ought to do. There's different opinions between the administrators, the prophets, and King Hezekiah. Should we defend ourselves? Should we go out and make weapons? Should we just pray? Should we just trust? What do we do? That's a hard one. The prophets weigh in. I took three prophets from the Old Testament and put them all together in one statement to show you what they thought. 
The whirlwind that brings disaster will bring invaders all the way to Zion's gates. You will also be rubble unless you accept Yahweh's plan to purge the territory from corrupt seers, prophets, and leaders, and from idolatry of the people. Therefore, Judah, step away from Israel's snares, or terror will overtake you. Judah, Yahweh will judge you. Jerusalem, if you worship him, and welcome the remnant to worship those people fleeing from Israel. Embrace justice and are guardians of his law. The Assyrians will come no further than your gates. He will save you, and not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen. So this is a message from the prophets. One's a contemporary, about the age of Hezekiah, one who's recently deceased, and then, of course, Isaiah. And this is not the instincts of how the typical leader would head out the situation. We're just going to trust God. We're going to get rid of the bad seers and prophets and so forth. It just doesn't resonate. You would think, oh, we've got to get ready for battle. So you have the greatest dilemma in history, but there's multiple heads on this. You have the king, you have the prophets, you have the engineers, people doing construction on the wall, priests, administrators. And you can get their perspectives by dissecting the text of how they're approaching the problem of Sennacherib is coming. Well, we also have dilemmas here in our Metro LA. We're trying to figure out what the future for Metro LA. We've got three teams, A, B, and C. Amen. Team A is the Ministry Leadership Council's task force that's been helping Peter Garcia, Steve Marici, Raphael, Jerry, and Ron Quint. And uh, then we have Team B, which is your legacy staff. That'd be like Reese and Grace and Tony and Adrian and people like that, some elders in training that have been part of the inner workings of the staff dynamic. Then we have Team C, and that's people that came in through the survey process. But guess what? You're all going to be involved. These are people not going to work from a close behind the doors and then give you a verdict on the future. They're going to, we're going to be expanding the feedback system by which to navigate some challenging topics. Like, uh, what are the unifying principles of our region? And uh, what kind of leadership culture do we want to have across six sectors and as they connect to one another? And what kind of a leader is capable of leading it that way? And so forth. So you'll get more on that. We get a report in about a week. And but even between now and then, some of you will be pulled in to help with the agency teams. Anyway, these are the people. Right there. You'll get this report. So let's go back to that. Tune in next week. This is a long service, I gotta move on. Hezekiah had few options. It's really easy to see resistance, which includes fighting. You're ready for war, fortify the walls. We're going to get ready to kick some tail. When these guys get in, we're going to win. Okay. Well, they're way outnumbered, so that's hard to imagine. But that would be the mentality from a worldly standpoint. Oh, we're going to surrender. Or we're going to negotiate first. Send somebody off to negotiate and then go back and forth till you find out what the win-win situation is. Now, if you don't negotiate with Syria, you come out winning, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So, or, 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 that's a hard one to figure out. What else makes sense? We'll get to that. There, you see this uh, picture there? That's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's 1,740-some feet long. 
It was about a five-year construction project. Hezekiah knew this day was coming of a battle, so he had people construct a tunnel by which to bring water from a pool outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem so that they would have the water. But then they would block the water from outside the walls so an invading army would get thirsty and have no recourse. And if you know the area very well, it gets dry real quick outside of Jerusalem. And they'd end up going to the Dead Sea or some River Jordan or somewhere. But this was tactically a smart idea. Let's have all the water on the inside. About a five-year project, what they did is they dug from two ends and eventually found each other. And there's a plaque where they met. They were off by about 11 inches, I think. That made it all happen. It's an amazing feat, but let's talk about how God feels about it. Yahweh stripped away the defenses of Judah. You looked in that day to the weapons of the palace of the forest. You saw the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places, and you stored up water in the lower pools, and you counted the buildings in Jerusalem, and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or had regard for the one who planned it long ago. I mean, it's the best of man's plans may not be good enough. So it's really nice to have a prophet in your life. Come on. As a guy has his first brave heart moment, let me set the key to the stage. This is about July. All 46 cities in Judah, except for Jerusalem, 47, are gone. And the army is coming, and the commander is already there, creating a dialogue to say, open up, and we won't kill all of you. Here's what Hezekiah says. Be strong. Be brave. Don't be afraid. Don't lose hope. The king of Assyria is huge army with him, but there's a greater power with us than there is with him. The only thing he has is human strength. But the Lord, Yahweh, our God, is with us. He will help us. He'll fight our enemies. You can see that. I can see Mount Gibson could do a good movie about that, right? Yeah. Okay, this is a powerful moment. But it doesn't last long. Because as the negative news comes in, the commander happens to speak Hebrew. So he's shouting from outside and intimidating those on the inside. And so what is... What do we find out? And this, by, by the way, here's the bad news they have coming in. That they, 150,000 warriors were cut down. I decimated the enemy hosts with arrow and spear. All their bodies had board through. Cut their throats like lint. If I were to read the whole text, put it all up on the screen, there would be sections on there that wouldn't be appropriate for a Sunday church service. Mm -hmm. He was evil. And the news was coming in. So what did that do? It made Hezekiah say, I've done wrong, withdraw from me, and I'll pay whatever you demand. He wimped out. He gave from the temple treasury gold and spiritual religious items that didn't do anything to stave off the coming of the army. The Assyrians miscalculated here. What they did was, first of all, they started insulting these men. And they said, on who were you depending that you were rebelling against me? Look, I know you're depending on Egypt. And all this bold talk to intimidate them. Nobody's ever done any good when we've taken them on. Then 
Hear the word of the great king. This is in Hebrew. The king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. And through this language of making peace. Well then, like him, basically the administrator, the secretary, and the recorder went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told what the field commander had said. They're freaking out. Then, this is important here. The office, this commander spoke further. Just as the gods of the peoples in the other lands did not rescue the people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue the people from my hand. Now it goes even one step further. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about gods of other peoples of the world, the work of human hands. They're insulting God, Yahweh, Jehovah. They're putting him down. This, this, is a, this was a major miscalculation. Because it did something to the people that were standing by the wall. Up until now, it's, I don't want to die. I mean, that's your first thought, right? I mean, that would be my first thought. I don't want to die. But they actually changed the motivation now. Wait a minute. You haven't insulted our God? And you've invoked his name? It's important to understand when you read the Old Testament, when you see a capital L-O-R-D, there's always been a debate about what to do with the Yahweh, the word that could either be Yahweh or Jehovah. There's no vowels in, in the Hebrew, so we don't know if it's a two or three syllable word. But the NIV made the decision just to put capital L-O-R-D so you can make up your own decision. But really, that, and by the way, the Jews did not say the name of their God in front of pagans, so it would never get misused. So they would say a Hebrew equivalent of Lord. Well, here is a good example of why. Because the commander used the name Yahweh in a degrading way. That made the hair stand up on the back of the necks of the commander, the secretary, the administrator, and Hezekiah and Isaiah. What? What did you just say? Did you hear what they said? They were offended in the right way. Sometimes we're offended for ourselves. Come on. We're offended for our church. We're offended for our family or for our ideas. We should be offended for the things that God wants us to be offended about. Come on, Steve. So then, Hezekiah received the word, and he went up to the Lord's temple, and he spread out the notice of this, and he says, Lord, who rules over all, you are the God of Israel. You sit on your throne between the cherubim, you are Lord of the God of the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Listen, Yahweh, hear us. Open your eyes, Yahweh. Look at the trouble we're in. Listen to us in Akareb saying, you are the living God. And he dares to make fun of you. That's the right emphasis here. Come on. It's got to be about God. Yeah. Amen. You know, sometimes we make, we get into trouble in society and in churches when we just don't make things about God. Come on, bro. My needs are not being met. My idea isn't heard. My philosophy should be voiced. You know, what about me? 
Come on. And, and there is definitely an importance of looking over neglect and lopsidedness in the church. Absolutely. But sometimes we lose sight of, but where's God in all this? Yeah. He calibrates us. He's our anchor. He's the one who aligns us. And so Hezekiah gets this right. Meanwhile, Isaiah is also praying. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out and prayed to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated the fighting men of the commanders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. This happened so fast. What? You get offended and you say, God, this is not right. They're making fun of you. And you're praying about it. And then, boom, 185,000 people are dead. An angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all these dead bodies. Amen. Now get this, brothers and sisters. This isn't just a fancy Bible story made up by people to make people feel good about God. It's also supported by secular evidence. Come on, bro. It's just a historical fact. Yeah. The Germans lost World War II. Yeah. Sennacherib lost the battle against Jerusalem. Fact. A bunch of people died. An army this big died on that day. Fact. Yep. Now here's what they can make sometimes. Was there a disease that spread through mice that killed the soldiers? That's for one of the versions from the ancient days. But that could have been the angel even doing that. Amen. So don't get bogged down into the weeds of this. They died right away. Because people got incensed for God. Come on, bro. Not for themselves. For God. And brought God into the equation. And they found the fourth option. Brothers and sisters, the fourth option for your life might be stop playing games with sin, pornography, addiction, alcoholism, whatever on. else. Should I open up my life? I know my marriage is horrible. I'm working with somebody at work. Should I or shouldn't I not do that? No, make it about God! Come on, bro. Should I open up with my life if I do? Some people might not think I'm so cool. That's okay, you're not. <laughs> We're cool when we open up with our lives. We're not when we put on the show. And so we've got to bring God into the equation. Let's figure out more what happened. Here's against Sennacherib. Because you rage against me, because of your insolence has reached my ears, I'll put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I'll make you return by the way you came. Which he did. Now, Sennacherib has his own version of what happened. Um, you know, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege of 46 cities. Da, 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 da. Him, myself, I made a prisoner of Jerusalem, the royal residence, like a bird in a cage. This is... Sheer spin. It doesn't say that he won, that Hezekiah survived, that he prevailed. This would be a battle that would nag Sennacherib to the rest of his life. He never went into Ethiopia. He never went into Egypt. He got stopped at Jerusalem. And he just can't say it. Again, I know famous politicians are like that. They just can't put the truth as it is out there. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I'm not going <laughs> Now, so he withdrew to his own land in disgrace, and when he went into the temple of God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with his sword. Yeah. 
That's history. Don't mess up. Don't mess with God. Don't insult God. You be careful when you talk about his scriptures. Yep. About his creation, about the works of his hands, his son Jesus. You've got to be careful, man. So you can play on fire if you mess up on these things. Yep. Come on. Now Hezekiah, he trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because the original kingdom was Israel. And Judaism, the Jews from Judah were the light, the lamppost of ancient Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Cool story, huh? Yeah. Now, I'm going to close with two quotes from historians, famous historians, that are not necessarily worshipers of God. These are just historians. With the hindsight of 2,700 years, we can see that Sennacherib's campaign to Judah was a fateful moment in history. He had demolished Jerusalem. Had he demolished Jerusalem or even just deported its inhabitants, that would have been the end of the state of Judah. And the resulting world would bear little resemblance to our own. And what does that mean? If we had lost Jerusalem at that point in time, we would not have our Old Testaments. Wow. See, the Old Testament was now located in one spot, Jerusalem. One place. And you know, all the Western justice systems of civilization are traced back to Moses, carried on to the kings, mostly through Judah, all the way up to Jesus, the apostles, and the growth of the church. So the idea of how we handle witnesses and testimony and equality and impartiality, all those things, they come from the Bible. You will not find ancient documents. Even though we have ancient documents about justice systems, you won't find any emphasizing those things. So if you're an attorney like Adrienne Newsom, Amen. she was trained in a derivative of the ancient Judeo-Christian ethic that actually even influenced our constitutions and our declarations, Amen. not just in America. So as messed up as we are as a nation, and we are for sure, Come on. some of the best stuff we have is because the battle here in Jerusalem was won because a few people were really offended and prayed right. Amen. Last quote. Had the Assyrian army remained healthy in 701, Jerusalem would probably have been captured and the people dispersed, as had happened to Samaria only 20 years before. Think of what that would mean. The world as we know it becomes unrecognizable, profoundly, utterly different. Surely there is no greater might have been in all recorded history. You know, there's also two versions of you. Yep. There's the version of you that's going to trust in God and be preserved by God because you rely on Him and you are principled. And then there's a version of you that's either cowardly or agenda-driven and only in your self-interest. But we're going to come out head better as individuals or in the Metro LA ministry or the Los Angeles Church of Christ in general when we make things about God. Yes. Amen. It's got to be about God. When the Lord's honor stirred Hezekiah, Isaiah, and the officials of Judah, the city was rescued. But this breakthrough did not occur until they realized it was always about God. And I want to say to you that the greatest king of Judah prevailed against the superpower, but the king of kings prevailed, prevailed against the greater enemy, death. Wow. Come on. And when we see how he handled his final moment approaching Jerusalem, and then they put him on a cross after immense suffering already took place, he's up on the cross. 
The Hebrew writer says he scorned the shame. It's like saying, whatever. Whatever. I'm making this about my father. Let that be us, okay, brothers and sisters? Yes. Amen. Thank you very much.